Today is Monday, July 25th, 2022. This is Quick Start from CBN News. I'm Dan Andros. With a recession looming, the White House tries to grab a hold of the narrative. We'll have that top story and more on today's podcast, where we bring you news from a Christian perspective. If you agree with that mission, you can help by subscribing to this podcast. Give us a rating, share it with a friend, all that good stuff. There's enough secular news out there. Why not get it from somewhere that shares your values? Joining me today, as always, Trey Gones, Phillips, and Billy Hallowell from CBN's Faith Wire. What's going on today, guys? Happy Monday. Oh, the week is beginning. Yes. We are we are entering into the fray, and yeah, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about Friday, as always. <laughs> There's no shortage of crazy news, so it's fun to go through it together, you know? Yeah. It makes it a little it more is. bearable. It is. Indeed. That's it what is. We, that is what we're here for. And coming up on the main thing today, an effort is underway to send major amounts of national resources into local and previously largely nonpartisan local elections. So there's a lot at stake there. Madison Seals is breaking it all down with Jason Sneed from the Honest Elections Project. But first, we are going to take a look at some of the today's top headlines. Are we officially heading into a recession? Depends on who you ask. Recessions refer to two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. But the White House Council of Economic Advisors, they've called that definition into question. They said late last week in a blog post that's getting some attention now. They said while some maintain that two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitutes a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. So. On Meet the Press over the weekend, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was on there, and she said the economy is not in recession, but one that's rather, quote, in a period of transition, and, quote, growth is slowing in the midst of that transition. So Republicans, of course, have criticized this, so expect to see some spirited back and forth on that contention today and this week. Uh, The WHO chief declared monkeypox a global emergency And this is without expert consensus. They did it anyway. It was the first time a UN agency chief has unilaterally made such a decision without the expert recommendation to go alongside it, according to the Associated Press. And U.S. track star Sydney McLaughlin has absolutely smashed her uh, own previous record in the 400-meter hurdles. And... Uh, if you haven't seen the video, prepare yourself to be shocked when you actually see it because it's it's impressive. And at 22 years old, what's even more impressive is her faith. Check out her post-race interview here. The first question she's asked about the race and how she did it, et cetera, et cetera. And here's how she answers. Yeah, well, I'll have to start off by saying all the glory to God. Uh, these past few days, just getting ready for this race. Uh, Hebrews 4.16 has been on my mind. Um, coming boldly to his throne to receive mercy and grace. And I think he really gave me the strength to do it today. So all the glory goes to God. And uh, coming into this race, I just wanted to go out there and attack the whole thing. You got to love it when the announcer just wants some race info and they basically get a sermon instead. I mean, she's quoting Hebrews out there. Great stuff. She's a phenomenal athlete and she's been bold about her faith. So really, really glad to see that. Well, those are some of the top headlines happening today over at CBN News. You can go there and check out more. Uh, throughout the day for news with a Christian perspective. The Chinese government, they have demolished an underground church. This is something they've been doing now on and off. We've seen over the last few years, and this time it's for refusing to come under control 
of the Communist Party. So what what is going on here with this story? Yeah, so this is, like you said, has been part of an ongoing trend now for several years. Uh, CBN News' George Thomas has actually reported on this uh, quite a bit over the last handful of years. So uh, the church that was in China's Hebei province, uh, they were gathering in a tent structure uh, when it was torn down just recently by the Chinese government, President uh, Xi Jinping's uh, regime, uh, while he, the priest, was actually in the hospital being treated for paralysis. Uh, So the Chinese government ordered the congregation to align with the communist-controlled Catholic Patriotic Association, uh, which they refused to do. Uh, So the association really is just, you know, a a shell of a company uh, that, you know, tries to act like it's this pro-religious freedom organization, uh, when in reality, all it is is a way for the the uh, the Chinese government uh, to keep tabs on Catholic church leaders, really any religious church leader. They have several organizations, not just for the Catholic church, but also for Protestant Christian organizations or Protestant Christian churches, I should say, uh, to keep them in control, uh, to, to make sure that they're only promoting uh, pro-communist, pro-Chinese things. And like I said, this church refused to fall in line with that. Mm. Uh, so the Vatican doesn't have any formal relations uh, with the Chinese Communist Party, uh, but it has participated in negotiations with Beijing since about 2014. Uh, they signed a provisional deal with the regime, with the regime in 2018 uh, to allow the appointment of bishops uh, by the Chinese government, which was super controversial. That was renewed again in 2020. Uh, so the government is then allowed by this agreement to propose names for new bishops uh, that the Vatican th- can then, uh, through the Pope, e- either say yes or no to. Uh, but the controversial part, of course, is that it's the Chinese government making decisions on who's nominated mm-hmm. rather than the Catholic Church. It's sort of yeah. like having regulations on steroids, right? Like here where you have to get permits for things. I mean, they do that to churches there. And of course, not having a you know freedom of religion enshrined in a constitution, that causes a lot of problems because it, it puts churches in this tough spot because they want to operate. But then at the same time, they know if they don't go along with this, they could get in big trouble and, and have things like this happen and the government can sanction it. Well, yeah. And the fact too that the, you know, the Chinese government, we have stories about this on CBN News. Uh, they censor what scripture says. Uh, they go through mm-hmm. religious texts and alter them to make sure that they're uh, pro-Chinese Chinese, you know, or pro-communist uh, in everything that they say. Uh, so, you know, really, at the end of the day, are, are you reading content that's actually legitimately God-inspired if it's been completely edited and altered by the Chinese government and and all of your leaders, uh, they're only in a position of leadership because they've received, uh, you know, the rubber stamp of the Communist Party. Uh, So we should also note that Open Doors uh, USA, which monitors, obviously, the persecution of Christians, they estimate that there's more than 97 million Christians in China, but says that the majority of them have to worship underground and in secret uh, for fear of this kind of stuff happening to them. They're also imprisoned, of course, for their faith, too. Mm. You look at the the fact that, as you were saying, Trey, the Bible is essentially being rewritten by the Communist Party, and that will be the only available version of Scripture officially, right? You'd have to smuggle other Bibles in. That That is one of the most diabolical things that I, that I've ever heard. And yet that's the report, right? That they've been working on this. It's, it's like a 10 year project for them to basically rewrite scripture. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. And and we've seen reports too of, of Christians who have actually in China have started to memorize the Bible 
because they've had to for exactly for reasons like this, because you look at this and over time, I mean, we see it in the Bible uh, when we look at what happens to Israel, you know, they, they immediately start out after being led out of Egypt and they're following God. But then over the generations as they pass, they start worshiping idols and they fall away. And then the ones growing up, I mean, how do they even know if you're brought up in, in this stuff? So you, you think about the Chinese Christians, if they get this watered down version and a couple generations go by, I mean, it you know, the truth really gets sort of convoluted in there and really hard to follow. So we definitely uh, need to be praying for our Christian brothers and sisters over in China and helping where we can. There are a lot of great organizations that we report on frequently that are that are doing good work over there. So Nigeria, though, has been another hot spot for uh, Christian persecution. And the latest in the string of attacks and other atrocities is happened to a pastor and his family. Billy, what's uh, what is happening there? Yeah, this is the Reverend Daniel Umaru. He was shot and his two sons were killed, a 19-year-old and a 23-year-old, mm. in a July 5th attack. Uh, basically, these, from what we know, these assailants, and we're not quite sure who they are, um, came into their home, killed his son, shot him, left him for dead. Um, his wife collapsed during the incident out of shock. And then his 13-year-old daughter was kidnapped. And um, luckily, you know, thankfully, she was released after a ransom was reportedly paid. Um, but this is just a horrific situation for this family. Um, he's apparently still in the hospital, the pastor, but will be okay. Um, they buried their two sons. And this is just part of what we're seeing happen in Nigeria. We've covered a number of these stories in, in recent months of Islamic extremism and then also related to that, attacks on Christians and churches. These attacks continue to rage. There was actually on July 15th, Two Catholic priests who were taken captive. One was killed, one escaped. Um, the stories are just sort of streaming out of Nigeria. And you'll remember a little bit earlier this year in May, on May 12th, there was a student who was stoned to death, a 25-year-old student named Deborah Yakubu. That story really brought what is going on in Nigeria into the international headlines. And so, um, you know, there's there's a lot to really unpack here, but the United States is also really kind of under scrutiny in all of this because we removed Nigeria from the countries of particular concern lists. Mm. And that was a list where you'd be monitoring essentially as the U.S., what is going on in Nigeria with this sort of extremism. And so there's been a lot of confusion over why that happened. Um, but we got to be praying for not only Nigeria, uh, but also for this pastor and his family who obviously are coping with incredible loss and tragedy in the wake of this. Yeah, absolutely. Horrible, horrible scene. And it brings to light, again, that move, as you just mentioned there, uh, taking them off that watch list. And uh, there really wasn't a good explanation for it at the time uh, why in the world would you take this off it kind of reeks of partisanship you just have to wonder it makes you scratch your head what's the deal there yeah you know i think we have to decide as a culture what are we willing to tolerate right what are we going to be okay with uh, and if we we don't want this religious persecution to be happening uh, at the top of the list is christians um, mm. so we're going to have to as a country uh, reconcile that and 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 stand up for persecuted believers. You know, we have all this social justice movement here in the United States, which is you know that's that's fine. Uh, but uh, if we care about that kind of safety, that kind of protection here, uh, we should be exporting it. We should care about it around the world. Uh, it's not to say we you know we can't put out every single fire, but uh, it is it is odd. You kind of scratch your head at the fact that uh, Nigeria has been removed. 
uh, from our watch list uh, in light of in light of all of this, you know. Yeah, indeed. All right, guys, thanks for bringing those stories today. Credibility of elections are really in doubt on the right and the left in America today. And now there's a group trying to insert hundreds of partisan candidates into local offices. Well, Madison Seals has the details on what experts are calling an incredibly concerning trend. That's today's main thing. Welcome into The Main Thing, where today we're discussing a national project aimed at electing partisan officials to election administrative positions. Election officials are supposed to be objective and nonpartisan, but these programs seem to almost reward partisanship by endorsing candidates who promote a progressive agenda. I have Jason Sneed, executive director of the Honest Elections Project here with me today to discuss these efforts that are focused on determining who controls election in the future and how. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to focus on a group called Run for Something that was founded by a former Hillary Clinton campaign staffer. It's a political action committee, or PAC, that started its $80 million clerk work project back in April. And one of the group's spokespeople said the goal of clerk work is to, quote, save democracy from the ground up by recruiting and supporting 5,000 plus candidates for local offices in charge of election administration, unquote. So let's tackle the first part of that effort first. It's a pretty hefty goal they have to save democracy. Can you talk about how clerk work operates? Clerk work appears to be a a political fund to help uh, finance campaigns for these very down-ballot offices that are are often actually nonpartisan in nature, these local offices that are responsible for administering our elections. And often these races are are won or lost with the, the equivalent political expenditure of buying a box of donuts. And so you can only imagine the sort of influence and effect that an $80 million program tying in national resources into these uh, local races can have. And this is tremendously important because, as, as you say, they've got a very lofty goal, right, to, to save democracy. Of course, I would argue that democracy is not in jeopardy and that what this is really all about at bottom is about getting political activists into these crucial slots so that they will be able to change the way that we conduct elections and push a progressive agenda, which happens to be unpopular and which so far has not caught on in a great many state legislatures or in Congress. Mm-hmm. Good point. So clerk work endorses candidates for election administrative positions. So let's talk about the candidates that they're trying to recruit and support. What are some of the responsibilities that these local election clerks are given? Well, these local offices are responsible for administering our election system. We have to remember that even though we have, uh, for instance, a single national election day and a presidential election, elections themselves are run state by state according to rules set by state legislatures, and they are administered at local uh, levels. So the folks that we're talking about are responsible for running precinct operations, making sure that at the county level or the city level, depending on where you live, that your election system are run. They are responsible for uh, for bringing on the volunteers that actually staff polling places and are responsible for making sure 
that uh, at bottom your local community is running a, a successful election. And that's why, as you said earlier, it's so important that these positions be nonpartisan and objective because you're talking about someone who has to sometimes interpret vague laws or rules, has to make sure that the system works and is uh, uh, entirely above board and beyond reproach. So the idea of finding people who are more interested in being political activists and putting them into these positions gives them a great deal of authority and a great deal of responsibility. And unfortunately, I think runs directly counter to the idea of objectivity and hewing to the letter of the law rather than perhaps the way these activists would prefer the law to be written. Right. And you mentioned they're empowered to interpret and enforce state election regulations and even whether to count absentee ballots that come in after Election Day, which has been a hot button issue in previous and recent elections. And in most states, these officials are elected. But could PACs donating to specific candidates directly or indirectly affect who holds these positions? Well, I certainly think that uh, that is the object of, of Run for Something and, and this project clerk work is to try to make sure that there is a particular caliber of candidate, a particular type of candidate who is getting into these offices. And yes, these offices do have a tremendous degree of authority. They're often overlooked you know, in terms of the, the glitz and glamour of presidential campaigns or Senate campaigns or gubernatorial races that, that take up a lot of our time and attention. But they are tremendously important. And so the, the idea here, again, seems to be that, uh, that there should be, in the eyes of the, the clerk work team at least, a particular activist-oriented sort of person who is, uh, who is put into these, uh, into these offices. And then, of course, as we've, uh, as we've seen in 2020, for instance, with the Zuckbucks and this massive infusion of private dollars directly into election offices, well, that program is continuing under a new name. And so you can see very quickly how you can develop a, a conduit, if you will, of, of finding progressive activists, getting them elected into these local or county positions, and then plugging them into the new Center for Tech and Civic Life um, uh, program called the Alliance for Election Excellence, equipping them with what this group calls best practices and trainings so that they will have resources and they will have uh, you know, quote unquote, best practices to lean on in order to make change in these local offices. And that change can look like anything from deciding to count undated or late ballots contrary to state law to, you know, how and where you cite polling uh, locations. So there's a lot here at stake. And, and this is very important for folks to be paying attention to. Absolutely. How is this different from recruiting registered Democrats or Republicans as poll workers and poll watchers? Well, this is different in that we're talking about people who are exercising supervisory authority. So these are the folks who are actually supposed to be calling the shots, running the elections. There is a long history of recruiting volunteers to be poll workers, and there is a long history of recruiting volunteers to serve as poll watchers as well. But the difference here is that we're talking about someone who is elected to a government office that has a a very important responsibility and has, I think, an obligation and a duty to be objective and nonpartisan and to make sure that elections work according to the letter of the law. Uh, the idea of putting activists into that position and recruiting them really with the apparently deliberate focus of wanting activists 
uh, in those positions, I think is is very different than what's been done previously and what is still being done now by both sides in terms of recruiting volunteers to staff polling places on election day or uh, observe the process either of voting or of tabulating the votes. Okay, so it's really a mix between the authority of the p- the position and the money and the progressive agenda that makes this all so dangerous. And even though the Clerkwork project is new this year, the politicization of election officials has been a growing controversy for years. And um, it closely resembles a project by George Soros that elected attorneys who would take a progressive approach. So how dangerous is this trend of politicizing the election offices? I think it's incredibly, incredibly concerning. It, we are at a unique and unfortunate moment in American history where the credibility of elections is in doubt across both the left and the right. In fact, if you look at some recent polling, only about one in four voters think that both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections were decided correctly. In other words, three out of four voters in this country believe that at least one of those elections was, you know, to use the word, stolen. And that's very concerning because, of course, if you want to actually have a functional democratic system, elections are the way that we uh, we appoint people to run our government and we expect there to be legitimacy. And so we should be doing all we can to ensure that voters have confidence that their elections are free and fair, that the, the rules are being followed and that everything in the process is above board. Politicizing these local offices to this degree really seriously opens up the election system itself to greater degrees of concern about its fundamental legitimacy and its fundamental fairness. And the more that we lean into this politicization uh, trend that we've seen in recent years, I think the greater we expose ourselves to public doubts. And of course, one of the reasons that we, we, we see people vote in the first place is because they believe their vote matters. If you fuel public concerns about the legitimacy of elections, about whether their vote actually counts, and you fuel those doubts, then I think you're also going to see people start to walk away and become apathetic and not participate. And that is a whole other problem that we would have to deal with then too. So it's very troubling and very concerning that effectively what we're seeing is people deciding that the best response to a fire is to pour gasoline on it. And this attempt to do what they did with uh, very political uh, uh, DAs, trying to repeat that strategy with the offices that are responsible for administering the foundation of democracy should concern every single citizen. Yes, absolutely. Jason Sneed with Honest Elections Project, thank you for all you do in promoting integrity and authenticity in elections and for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, Madison, thank you very much for that. That leaves us time for one last thing, guys. And Trey, we have got a heartwarming story over on CBN News. Yeah, so two HGTV hosts, a couple, Jenny and Dave Mars, uh, eight years ago, they adopted a daughter from the Republic of Congo. Uh, and they're rec- you know, reflecting on that now and talking about God's faithfulness uh, and how they can see now that God's timing uh, was perfect. Uh, the the wife, uh, Jenny, said she posts this picture every year uh, and she she said it always reminds her quote of the things that God has in store, uh, you know, for them and their family and certainly for their daughter, Sylvie. So incredible story. And you can never get enough uh, adoption stories, right? I mean, they're just they're just always heartwarming every time. All right. Hey, that's all. We've done it, guys. We've made it through Monday. Congratulations. Your week is well yeah. on the way to being over. So 
Um, as always, head on over to cbnnews.com, faithwire.com for more news from a Christian perspective. As we always say, Lord willing, and that creek don't rise on us, we will be back here tomorrow with more of a same. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, all that good stuff. God bless. See you back here tomorrow.